Acts chapter 13 tonight, uh, beginning in verse 13 and 14, and hopefully we'll make it to the end. It was the method of the early church to find strategic cities in which to plant churches and then use those churches as a base of operation, sort of like a spiritual military camp, to train up individuals and to evangelize the entire region. That was Paul's method, we see here and throughout the book of Acts, as we now travel on some of Paul's missionary journeys, as they're called. This is Paul's first missionary journey. And one of the obvious facts you notice in going through these chapters is that Paul had a a passion for souls. He was concerned about people hearing the gospel message. He really didn't care about much else. In fact, you could even say he was a little reckless. But he wanted people to hear the gospel. He would go deliberately into areas that were unsafe and people would even warn him, Paul, don't go there. The Holy Spirit is saying, if you go, you'll be put in prison and perhaps killed. He said, hey, I don't care. I don't count my life dear to me. I want to finish my course with joy. That which the Lord put before me. He had a passion for souls. And there's a lot we can learn about sharing with people who don't know Christ from watching Paul's life. You know, to overcome fear in sharing our faith, it requires a conviction that we have a message that people need desperately to hear. When we can really believe that, I think we've overcome our fear. Example, suppose a person's walking down the street and he notices people meeting in a building up on one of the floors, a large meeting, and as he's walking he notices a fire that's breaking out in a floor just below the meeting room. And he can see it as he's walking down the street. Well, I'll tell you, he's going to be able to run down the street, run into that building, and warn everybody to get out. He will have no fear of them rejecting his message because he knows that he has a message they need to hear. They need to get out or they're going to be dead. And when you're convinced of that, that overcomes fear. And Paul, it seemed, although I'm sure he was beset with fear, he even admitted that, It was that which motivated him to share. That people desperately need to hear this message. And so that's what caused him to travel around from Paphos to Pergia to Pamphylia to Antioch and Pisidia and all the other weird names that we read about, all these places, so that churches could be established and the Word of God could get out. Now in verse 13, it says, Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, which is the island of Cyprus, They came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, that is John Mark, the nephew of Barnabas, departed from them, and he returned to Jerusalem. Now, we don't know exactly why he did this, and we brought this up before, but it could be that he was homesick. It could be that he was a young Christian, he was tired of traveling. He said, look, I'm not cut out for this ministry, I tried it, and now I'm going to go back to Jerusalem. Or it could be that he resented... Paul being in charge now instead of Uncle Barney. Barnabas was the one sort of spearheading this operation, but pretty soon Paul becomes in charge, and it could be that there was a family resentment. Or it could be that John Mark was one of those legalists, certainly a possibility, who was uncomfortable with Gentiles coming to know Jesus Christ. And some scholars believe that when he returned to Jerusalem, he's the guy that got all the Jews stirred up in Jerusalem in Acts 15. And they were mad that the salvation had come to the Gentiles and they didn't know about it. Or it could be that he just didn't want to go. 
he was just discouraged and he decided because of the danger involved that he wanted to go back to Jerusalem where it was safe. Whatever reason caused John Mark to flake out, if you will, and go back home, it really made Paul upset. And it was enough to say for Paul, you're off the team now, you can't come with us. In fact, later on, when they take their second missionary journey, Barnabas says, hey, if we're going to go, let's take John Mark again. Paul said, forget it. He flaked out on us last time, no way. And they had an argument, and the contention was so great that Barnabas goes one direction and does his own ministry, and Paul goes another direction and does his own ministry. And yet, though we read in this verse that he returned to Jerusalem, though he flickered out in his brightness, perhaps, he's not completely washed out. In fact, later on, he will be very valuable to Paul the Apostle as they go. Now, in verse 14, through the end of the chapter, is Paul's first public sermon, recorded at least in the Scripture, and the effect of that sermon, some good effects and some bad. I love to study sermons of great preachers in the past. It's one of the things I love to do. love to hear how they communicated the truth, the words they used, the impact it had. And that's why I like sections like this, because we get to hear Paul's own sermon. My only disappointment is that they didn't have tape recorders in those days. I would have loved to have been on Paul's mailing list and received his taped messages and hear how he came across. Having read some of the epistles and the books of Paul, I feel like I know him. I know his style. He was so simple. He was so straightforward. And in this message, though not all of us are called to preach sermons, there are tips that we can all pick up in sharing the gospel message with unbelievers. Now, we've gone through a lot of those examples in Acts. That's why I think the Holy Spirit gave it to us, to give us enough examples of how to share our faith in different situations. So a lot of pointers can be picked up. One thing is for sure, Paul became all things to all men. He was a unique individual. You could set him inside of a group of scholars and theologians, and he could feel his way around and feel at home. You could put him in Athens with pagan philosophers, and he could shoot straight with them. He knew their talk. You could put him with Jews. He knew the law. You could put him with Gentiles. He knew their ways. He was a learned, well-rounded individual. He didn't feel intimidated in any crowd. And so it's interesting to get insight from this man. In verse 14, it says, They departed from Perga, and they came to Antioch in Pisidia. In other words, they left Cyprus, sailed a little bit west and north, hit the coast and traveled a hundred miles north to a place called Antioch in Pisidia, which is a different Antioch. There were several of them, dozens of them in those days. And this is another one. And it says, He went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he sat down. And after the reading of the law and the prophets, the rulers of the synagogue sent to them saying, Men and brethren, if you have any word of exhortation for the people... Tell us. Say on. Now talk about open doors. It's very rare, but I've had people actually come up and say, would you tell me how to get saved? Now you don't have to pray about that one. I mean, it's open door. You just have to walk right through it. And so here's Paul in a synagogue on the Sabbath day, and somebody says, if you'd like to share something with us this morning that perhaps is beneficial, the word of exhortation, tell us. We're open. And so Paul stood up 
And he motioned with his hand. Most scholars believe Paul was a short little fella. Had to get their attention. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen. Now this was always Paul's method. To go into a synagogue. Going on the Sabbath day, he would always start with the Jews. That's because the Jews were scattered and developed synagogues in every place in the New World where they went. And it was very customary after the rabbi gave the reading of the law to open it up to another visiting rabbi. And Paul was a Jewish rabbi. And it could be that he recognized Paul, the rabbi, knowing that Paul was pretty famous in and around Jerusalem, that he studied under Gamaliel. He said, hey, Paul, we have a kind of a celebrity here today. You got a message? Go for it. So he opened, uh, you know, signaled him down, and he gives his message. In verse 17, The God of this people Israel chose our fathers and exalted the people when they dwelt as strangers in the land of Egypt, and with an uplifted arm he brought them out of it. Now for a time of about 40 years, he put up with their ways in the wilderness. And when he had destroyed seven nations in the land of Canaan, he distributed their land to them by allotment. And after that, he gave them judges for about 450 years until Samuel the prophet. And afterward, they asked for a king. And so God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin, for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up for them David as king, to whom also he gave testimony and said, I have found David, the son of Jesse, a man after my own heart, who will do all of my will. From this man's seed, according to the promise, God raised up for Israel a Savior, Jesus. Goes to their history and then gets right to the point. After John had first preached before his coming the baptism of repentance to the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, Who do you think I am? I'm not he, but behold, there comes one after me, the sandals of whose feet I'm not worthy to loose. Men and brethren, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to you the word of this salvation has been sent. For those who dwell in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not know him, nor even the voices of the prophets, which are read every Sabbath, have fulfilled them in condemning him. And though they found no cause for death in him, they asked Pilate that he should be put to death. Now when he had fulfilled all that was written concerning him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God raised him up from the dead. And he was seen for many days by those who came up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are his witnesses to the people. And we declared to you glad tidings, that promise which was made to the fathers. God has fulfilled this for us, their children, in that he has raised up Jesus, as it is also written in the second psalm. You are my son. Today I have begotten you. And that he raised him up from the dead no more to return to corruption. He has spoken thus, I will give you the sure mercies of David. Therefore he also prays in another psalm, you will not allow, or says in another psalm, you will not allow your Holy One to see corruption. For David, after he had served his own generation by the will of God, fell asleep, was buried with his fathers and saw corruption. But he whom God raised up saw no corruption. 
Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all the things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. And he quotes it. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which you will by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. Now, Paul's method is interesting. You and I reading this would wonder, why are you talking about the history of the Jews when they said, if you have something to tell us, tell us. You'd think he'd say, I want to tell you about Jesus. Well, he does, but he goes back first. It's a very common method that the Jews like. They like hearing about their roots, their history. So he's reminding them where they came from, the promises that God has made, and how they predicted Jesus. Jesus came, he fulfilled that, and he was raised from the dead. And that's sort of like the crowning point of the whole message. Jesus is your Messiah. He was killed, and in being killed he fulfilled prophecy, but he was raised from the dead. There's one thing you can't help but noticing here. Just reading his sermon on the Sabbath. And that is, this guy knew the Bible. What a grasp of Scripture. I mean, he says, for about 450 years, and then Kish, da-da-da-da, for 40 years. And he's so detailed and accurate, he knew the Word of God. That's one of the secrets in being an effective anything as far as representing the Lord. To be an effective testimony for the Lord, it's great to know what God says about certain situations. And the more the Word of God is in you, the more the Holy Spirit can do with you. Knowing the principles of God's Word, God will unlock those when He opens your mouth, when He gives you an opportunity to share your faith, because it's stored up in your heart, it will come out during those times. Perhaps some of you have already been amazed the times you've shared. You know, David said, your word I've hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. There's been times where you've hid the word of God in your heart. Maybe you forgot about something. And all of a sudden you find yourself sharing with an individual. And out comes that scripture. And you even amaze yourself that you remembered that scripture and your witness fits so perfectly. And you kind of go away thinking, I didn't even know that I knew that. But it flowed out because it was stored up within you. Well, the more you store the Word of God in you, the more it can flow from you. Paul was equipped to do the work. In verse 38, and this is where I want to bring this to. He says, Therefore, let it be known to you, or literally, let it be known and clearly understand. And now here's the heart of his message. In verse 38 and 39, down to verse 41. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness of sins, and by him everyone who believes is justified from all things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken of the prophets come upon you. In these verses, we have some simple, concrete truth about a person's condition before they come to Christ, and our job, our commission of sharing with them their condition and challenging them. You know, when Paul gave a message, he always challenged people to respond to that. As does the rest of the Scripture. When Jesus gave a message, he would challenge them to respond to it right there. 
And he certainly does, and there is a response, as you can see. So the Jews went out of the synagogue, verse 42. The Gentiles begged that these words might be preached to them the next Sabbath. Now when the congregation had broken up, many of the Jews and devout proselytes followed Paul and Barnabas, who, speaking to them, persuaded them to continue in the grace of God. On the next Sabbath, almost the whole city came together to hear the word of God. But when the Jews saw the multitudes, they were filled with envy, contradicting and blaspheming. They opposed the things spoken by Paul. And Paul and Barnabas grew bold and said, It was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first, but since you reject it and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life, behold, we turn to the Gentiles. And so they kind of have a, a hot kind of a time here in sharing their faith in Antioch of Pisidia. But I want you to go back to verse 38. And the remainder of this time, let's look at the way he preached and shared his faith with these Jews in the synagogue. The first thing Paul does that I want to show you is that he presents to them the problem. After he presents the problem, he shows them the promise, the way to get out of the problem. But he doesn't leave it at that. He didn't just talk about the love of God and forgiveness. But then at the end, there's a warning, or there's the penalty. So he shares the problem, a promise, and a penalty if they reject God's promise. Now the problem, as you can see in verse 38, that Paul shares, and I think we ought to when we share with people, no matter how you do it, but you've got to fit it in. And the problem is, first of all, sin. Second of all, the law or religion. And notice he says in verse 38, Therefore let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached the forgiveness of sin. The basic problem that man has is a three-letter word, S-I-N. The problem is a sinful nature that we're born with. Sin is not just wrongdoing, it's wrong being. It is how you are born your nature is apart from God when you are born. You are in this state of sinfulness because of Adam's sin. And you need forgiveness. You need freedom from it. And he brings that up. You know, to understand sin, it's probably best to draw a little graph with a line in the middle. And on one side put sin, singular. And the other side put sins, plural, because there's a difference. First of all, thinking of sin, singular. I'm talking about the old nature. That's what the Bible calls it. The sin nature. The way you and I were born into this world apart from Christ. Listen to what Romans says. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way death came to all men. Death came to all men because all sinned. Again, the Bible calls this the natural man. In some places, depending on what version you have, it calls it the old man. It says, put off the old man. When I first read that, I thought it was speaking about my father, my dad. And at that time, I thought, hey, that's great. I got a proof text for it. Biblical rebellion. But the old man means not your dad, but the old you, the way you were born apart from Jesus Christ. David, regarding this, said, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. In other words, from the moment of conception, you are born a rebellious sinner. 
Some people don't like to hear that. Some people teach, well, no, everyone is born with a spark of good. And you just need to fan the flame enough to get the good out. Encourage the goodness. The Bible doesn't teach that. David even recognized, I am not perfect. In fact, I was born with a sin nature. Apart from God. And it's that problem that needs to be addressed. It's interesting that babies, I've noticed this with my own, never have to be taught how to sin. It comes so naturally. Now, they're cute, granted. They do wonderful things, and I love being around, watching what they do. But anyone who's had children knows that we are born with a sin nature. That's obvious. You need to teach a child to obey. Teach a child to love. Train a child to do what is right. That doesn't come naturally. Certain things do, but there is a rebellious nature that needs to be lovingly corrected until the time that that child can make a choice on their own to obey and follow the Lord or not. Another way of putting it, you were born dead on arrival. When you came into this world, you were alive with a beating heart, but spiritually you were dead on arrival. Came to the hospital and Dr. Jesus looked at you and said, you're history. This kid's dead. But it says, we who were dead in trespasses and sins, and it gives that scenario in Ephesians 2, God has made alive, who is rich in His mercy. It's nothing that you could do on your own. You were DOA. A corpse has no power. You can't tell a corpse, hey, get up. What are you doing lying around? Better yourself. Improve your condition. Think positive thoughts. Self-help methods would do you good. He's dead. He has no power. Nor can one corpse be more dead than another corpse. We're all born the same way. Though it seems that there are different degrees of wickedness, we're all apart from God and sin. You can't go up to two different dead people and say, I think this one's a little more dead than that one. This one's slightly dead. This is definitely dead. No. You're dead. You're dead. You know, there are some people who are capable of doing nice things and being good people, but still they have a sin nature. doesn't mean everybody's wicked. There are religious dead people. People who are apart from Christ who do very wonderful things. If you went out to a garden in the spring, summertime, and clipped a rose, or several of them, and made a bouquet... You've just severed that rose. Are those roses dead or alive? It depends how you look at it. They sure look beautiful. But give them some time. After they're disconnected, give them some time and they'll wither. They will be dead. Although they may look great on the outside, really they're separated and separation means inevitable death. Now in the other column, there are sins. We commit sins, plural, because we have sin within us, singular. We all commit sins. Sometimes we do it by choice. Sometimes we do it without really trying to do it. It just comes easily. The Bible describes it in a couple different ways. There are sins and there are transgressions. There are things that we do that we fail to meet God's standard. And there are other things we deliberately do against God. The Bible calls sin, one of the words is harmatia, which means to miss the mark. It's from an archery term where you would put out a target and you'd have somebody shoot his arrows at the target. Now, you and I might get out there and perhaps you're a better archer than I am. 
And I might get out there and, you know, five out of ten, I hit the target. One of them's a bullseye. But I still miss the mark. I'm not perfect. You might get out there and shoot one, boom, bullseye, two, bullseye, three, bullseye, eight, nine, bullseye, ten, you miss it. You're still a sinner. You've missed the mark. Some people are better sinners than others. But all of us are sinners. By what we do. We have a sin nature, but then we commit sins. And some of those sins is a failure to make the mark. Then there's transgressions, the Bible calls them, which is a deliberate going against God's will. Example would be if I drew a line up here on the stage and I said, don't cross this line. And you were to put your foot over it and say, what are you going to do about it? I did it anyway. That's transgression. And God draws a line and says, don't do that. And we put our foot over it. Sometimes we sin unintentionally by missing the mark. Other times we sin deliberately, don't we? You all do it. We do it by nature. And sometimes we do it by choice. We're guilty on both counts. We're sinners by nature. We're born dead on arrival. But then oftentimes, not only do we miss the mark, but we deliberately transgress in certain areas. On both accounts, all of us, like sheep, have gone astray. You know, some people often will say, you know, you talk about sin, but I am not as bad as other people. I mean, granted, I'm not perfect, I'm no saint, you've heard people say, but look at this guy, he's pretty wicked. All right, let's say we're on a boat. We're out in the middle of the ocean. You probably like that. A nice cruise. It's nice and warm and we're cruising down to the Caribbean islands. The sun's warm. We're having a great time. Now, let's take a poll. How many like to swim? How many are good at it? Raise your hand. You're a good swimmer. All right. How many of you can't swim at all? Don't be embarrassed. Raise your hand. All right. How many of you are poor swimmers? How many of you are just like me, average? All right. The boat sinks. We can't help it. It's going down. Now, the good swimmers are going to jump off immediately think, all right, I see that there's no help here or hope here in staying on the boat. I'm going to jump. I think I can make it. I see the land. And so you're able to swim, let's say the land's about eight miles away. Let's just say that you happen to be Jack LaLanne's protege. (laughs) And you make it seven and a half miles before you croak. You did pretty good, but you're dead. Now I get off and I swim, you know, at least 20 feet. And then I croak. Somebody jumps off and immediately dies because they can't swim. Some are better than others, but we're all dead. We didn't make it. The boat is sinking. We didn't make it. Though some may be better people than others, there is a disease that every man has. And when we share with other people, We can't just say, you know, you need to improve your condition in life. We need to somehow let them know that God says that they are sinners and He has a remedy for them. The boat is sinking, but He has a life raft. They don't have to try on their own, but they are in sin, and that is a problem. That is a problem that needs to be addressed with people, that needs to get across somehow in our sharing. Then there's another problem. And that is what he says here in verse uh, 39, the law of Moses. 
It says, by him, everyone who believes is justified from all the things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. Now, why is that a problem? Why is the law of Moses a problem? Because the law has no power to help me. Uh, for those of you who aren't astute yet in what this means, the law of Moses, the law of Moses was a code of spiritual ethics given to the children of Israel. God said, don't do this, do this, do this, don't do this. Here's all the rules and regulations. I want you to do this. Bring sacrifices to the temple, uh, so on and so forth. A rigid set of religious ethics. The law was good, but it never took away sin. It temporarily covered it and pointed to somebody else, that is Jesus Christ. The law was a problem. Because all that the law did is you'd read the law. Here you're an Old Testament scholar or you're someone in the Old Testament and you read the law and every time you read it, you recognize, I failed. So what the law does is paint this picture of God's standard and shows you that you're a failure. You never made God's standard. So you walk away from reading the law saying, yep, I blew it. That's what Paul said in Romans. Listen carefully. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law, this religious code of ethics. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. In fact, Paul later on says, I didn't even know I was a sinner unless I read the law. So that's what it does for me. It's an x-ray of the heart. It reveals my sinfulness. It's like, have you ever had somebody wake you up in the morning when it's dark inside your room and you have the curtains pulled and they say, wake up, and they turn on the light and sweep open the curtains and the sun hits you in your face and you go, oh, close that thing, turn off the light. The light reveals the darkness, it hurts. The law is like that. But the law has no power to change or to transform a person. So first of all, the law is good in that it rebukes me. It shows me that I'm a failure. And number two, it points me to Jesus Christ. It points me to Jesus Christ. It walks me along and says, okay, you're a failure. You didn't match up. But there's Jesus. Paul said that in Galatians. He said the law was what? Schoolmaster. Or New King James, a tutor. Someone who would lead you along the way in life who would take you to school and point the way to the teacher. Every day this, this schoolmaster would do that. He would point the way to the teacher and say, there, now you go to him and you be taught. And that's what the law does. The law takes us by the hand, shows us that by religion we can't make it, but points the way to Jesus Christ and shows us that we need a Savior. But it doesn't take care of the sin problem. So sin is a problem. The law or religion that gives us this code of ethics, which has no power to change us, is a problem also. After sharing the problem with him, in the same sentence, he shows the promise. And I want you to look at two words. Verse 38. Therefore, let it be known to you, brethren, that through this man is preached to you the forgiveness, that's the first word, of sins. And secondly, in verse 39, everyone who believes in him is justified. That's the second word from all the things which you could not be justified by the law of Moses. So the problem, sin. 
by nature and by choice, the promise, forgiveness, and justification. And when we share, somehow, that needs to come across as well. Especially forgiveness. You know why? People have longed for forgiveness in every generation from the beginning of time. Out for forgiveness. Sin debilitates us. Number one, it damns us to hell apart from the solution of Christ. And number two, it destroys a quality of life by ladening us with guilt. That's why we need to be forgiven. One psychologist said, a clear conscience is a great step in barricading the mind against neuroticism. The head of a British hospital said, I could dismiss half my patients tomorrow if they could be assured of forgiveness. There is a need for forgiveness. That's why Jesus from the cross said, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. They're doing something horrible, but they're ignorant of it. Forgive them. Because that's the cry of the human heart. The problem sin, the law, the promise, forgiveness, but also in the next verse, justification. Now that's a word that before we close, I want to explain to you. Justification. It actually means to make innocent, to declare pure. To make innocent or to declare pure. You know, there are certain biblical terms that you read. I don't know what version you read. But there are certain biblical terms and you read them and you think, what are all these technical... I don't even understand these technical terms. Regeneration, sanctification, justification, remuneration, condemnation. What are all these... Are they really important? Propitiation... This is one of them that you should know. Justification is different from forgiveness. Justification is also what every man cries out for. Let me read this to you in the Amplified Bible. It means to be cleared and free from every charge. To be cleared and freed from every charge. There's a difference between forgiveness and justification. Let's say I go out of here tonight, and because I have to travel somewhere early in the morning, I decide, you know, I'm just going to, I don't have much time, I'm going to put my foot on the gas pedal. It's late, you know, cops don't circulate this time of night. And so I gas it, and I'm going 80 miles an hour down the freeway. And I see red lights in my mirror, and I pull over, and I get a ticket. For me to be forgiven my debt to society, I need to pay that ticket. And so I say, all right, look, it. I was a yo-yo, I'm in a hurry. Give me the ticket. How much is it? Oh, $100, goodness. All right, I'll pay it. I go into the judge. I write out a check, hand him $100. My debt is forgiven. But it's still on the books. Because my insurance will let me know in a couple weeks. It's still on record. There's forgiveness, but no justification. Justification means the record is erased. Not only is the debt forgiven, the record is erased. Forgiveness is when I have a clean state. Justification, I have a clean slate. Again, another example. Richard Nixon was caught in the Watergate scan. He is forgiven today by society, but I know he wishes there never was a tape recorder in that room because it's on tape. And he's not justified. Justification is when God erases the tape. The record of wrongs that were against you and me are erased. The law of Moses couldn't do that. 
The law of Moses was a mirror. You'd look into it and say, I have blown it, I have failed. It points me to Christ, but it doesn't wash me. Nor does it take away the record of wrongs. Would you go into a bathroom and take the mirror off the wall and start rubbing it all over your body, thinking you're going to be clean by it? No, you can't do that. Neither can you be clean by the law, and that's Paul's point. Through Him is preached the forgiveness of sins, and you can be justified from all the things that you could not be justified from the law of Moses. There was no power in it. To a Jew, that was great news. Because every year he brought an animal to the temple to cover his sins, but his sins always remained. How do I know that? Because he kept bringing animals. He never stopped. Well, now we can be justified from all the things that the law could never nor ever had the power to do. That's why I love that little poem. Do this and live. Do this and live, the law commands, but gives me neither feet nor hands. A better word the gospel brings, it bids me fly, but then it gives me wings. That's the difference between law and grace. That's why in John's gospel it says, the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. And so Paul says, you have a problem. Sin and your religious legal system, that's your problem. Every man has the problem of sin. But there's a promise in the midst of that. You can be forgiven and the slate and the tapes can be erased. God won't hold you accountable for those things if you come to Him in forgiveness. That's the possibility, the promise that's given. But then in verse 40, the penalty of rejecting that promise. But beware, therefore, lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Paul was very balanced when he shared truth. He never preached a message, I'm okay, you're okay. It's nice to be nice, so let's all be nice. He said, there's a problem. God made a promise. But there's a penalty if you don't take His promise. And so he says, beware. It's a warning word. Beware therefore lest what has been spoken in the prophets come upon you. Behold, you despisers, marvel and perish. For I work a work in your days, a work which you shall by no means believe, though one were to declare it to you. What's he speaking? Why is he quoting this one? He's quoting Habakkuk. Habakkuk was a prophet who lived right before the exile into Babylon. Right before Babylon, or the Iraqis in ancient days, were about ready to come in and take possession of the known world. And Habakkuk was praying one time and he said, God, why do you allow the wickedness of your people, Israel and Judah, to continue? Why don't you do something about it? God said, well, I am doing something. In fact, I'm doing a work in your days that if I were to tell you, you wouldn't believe me. Well, what is it, God? I am going to use Babylon as a chastening rod against the sins of my people. I don't believe it, God. Why would you allow a nation more wicked than we are? I mean, we're wicked, but they're horrible. They're worse than we are. Why would you let them be used by you to punish us? And the reason Paul is bringing this out is that God in the past warned his people to turn and they didn't. And he used a more wicked nation to come against them. And so he's saying, beware. Lest you reject this promise that takes care of the problem, there will be this penalty. Beware what the prophet wrote so it doesn't come upon you. See, there's always two sides to the gospel. 
There's grace and there's love and there's forgiveness, but then there's wrath. Remember what it says in the Gospel of John? He who believes is not condemned. He who believes is not condemned. What a wonderful promise that is. To tell a person, if right now you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you will not be condemned. The record is clean. You're justified. But the scripture verse, the same verse, goes on to say, He who believes is not condemned. He who does not believe is condemned already. That's the flip side of the coin. Wrath is on the other side of the coin that says love and forgiveness. And so there's a problem. There's a promise to take care of the problem. And there's a penalty if that promise for the problem is rejected. God will judge. One thing about God's final judgment, it is absolute. God gives you zillions of chances now, but no chance later. Say, is that fair? Sure, it's fair. You have tons of chances right now. People say, do you believe in the God of the second chance? No. I believe in the God of the third, fourth, fifth, eighth, tenth, 120th, 3,000th, 8 millionth chance now. But later on, there will be no chances. It will be final. It will be absolute. It will be permanent. You know, I wish I could say differently, but I can't. There's all the time in the world now. No time later. It's absolute. It's final. It's permanent. There's only one person who has ever said differently. His name is the devil. And he's told people for thousands of years, put it off, you can wait. Don't make a choice now, it's no big deal. You're not ready for it yet. It's good for other people, but not for you. You can burn your sins off in purgatory or whatever. Don't do anything now. But it's absolute, it's permanent, and you've got to know something else here. And Paul, I'm sure this was in his heart as he gave this message. It breaks the heart of God. Don't think of God standing up there waiting, licking His chops, ready to judge people. It breaks His heart. Jesus wept over Jerusalem. He didn't laugh over Jerusalem. He wept over Jerusalem because He knew as it broke the Father's heart, it broke His heart to see people bringing judgment upon themselves for their actions. They didn't receive Him as their Savior. And He knew the inevitable consequence that their enemies would come around them. Jesus said they would cast a trench about you. Not one stone will be left upon another. They'll all be thrown down. And he wept over it. It's final, it's absolute, but it breaks the heart of God. He's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. That's the heart of God. Repentance, good old word, needs to be brought back. There's a little boy who stuck his hand one time in an expensive vase couldn't get it out. And this cost his parents big bucks. So his dad started thinking all of the ways he could get this kid's hand out. So he used soap, soapy water, put it all over the vase, put it inside in the hand and tried to get it out. wouldn't work. Went inside the garage, got motor oil and poured that around his hand thinking it'll be slippery enough to pull it out. Finally, nothing worked. They decided let's break this expensive vase. Got it overseas, but hey, it's his hand. Let's break it. And just then when they were about to break it, the kid turned to his dad and said, do you think it might help if I let go of the penny that I have in my hand? 
You see, he had a fist holding onto a measly little penny and it was bottlenecking. He couldn't get it out. And when he released his grip, he slid it right out of the vase. What a picture of people today who are grabbing a hold of some measly, insignificant treasure in their life that's keeping them from Christ. There's a problem, and that's sin. Religion can't help. But there's a promise, forgiveness and justification from all the things that those things couldn't take care of. And finally, there's a penalty. If you want to hold on to that penny, there's a penalty. That vase will have to break and perhaps it's going to be too late. But if you'd let go of that little tiny treasure, whatever it would be, there could be forgiveness. Those are truths that we as Christians need to share. They're essential. Anytime we share the gospel, we share all the counsel of God. We tell people that men are lost sinners without Christ. They just don't have hang-ups, they have sin. But don't leave it at that. You don't want to walk up to people and say, I want to tell you the good news. You are a sinner. God bless you. Bye-bye. That's not good news. It's bad news. But you've got to share the bad news. You have to say, you're a sinner, but God has a solution. I want to point you to Jesus Christ. I'd like you to meet Him. He'll forgive you of anything you've ever done. And He'll wipe the slate clean. He'll erase the tape. He'll dump all the information on the hard disk. It'll be completely erased. And you have a clean state and a clean slate before the Lord. But I want to warn you, if you reject His grace, you are placing yourself in line for judgment. So let go of that little penny in your hand. Let go of release. And come to the Lord in turn. That was Paul's message on a Sabbath day. And I'm sure the rabbi, when he said, does anybody have anything to share? You, Rabbi Paul, you want to share something? He had no idea what he was going to get. But what good news that was to a thirsty Jewish soul who only knew the legal rules and regulations and never knew freedom in Christ. And we see the response of that, and we'll cover that more next time we meet. Some liked it, some didn't. There was an uproar in the city, but many people came to know the Lord. You see, Paul shared the truth, and there was that challenge to respond. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, You have placed us strategically at the end of days. You've given us a message. A message that's greater than any message, greater than any news headline, greater than anything Peter Jennings, Ted Koppel, or our our local news, or our governments could ever give. A message of hope. A promise to overcome the problem. Lord, thank You for that wonderful word, forgiveness. Or You clean up our state before You. And that wonderful truth of justification where You clean up our slate before You. Or as Paul said in Colossians, You have taken away that handwriting of ordinances that was against us, nailing it to the cross. And Father, I pray that if 
there would be some that don't know you tonight that they would just at this time after hearing this Bible study, the same Bible study that Paul preached, that they would decide, I'm going to turn my life over to Jesus Christ. I desperately need that kind of forgiveness. It's the greatest need of my heart. And in a moment of silence as you're praying, I would like to just extend an invitation that we so often do here on Sunday nights, Thursday nights, and so forth. Perhaps your heart is crying to be forgiven. Crying to be justified. Perhaps you're tired of the way sin has wrecked havoc in your life and destroyed and driven you apart from God and you feel empty. You've tried different things. You've even tried religious experiences, but you've come up empty. But you want your life filled tonight. You want purpose in such a confusing time that we live in. If that's your desire, I'd like you to turn your life over to Jesus Christ. And if you'd like me to pray for you before we close, if you would like to give your life to Jesus, I'd like you to slip your hand up in the air right now where you're sitting and keep it up in the air. And I'll pray for you before we close. Keep it up. God bless you too here. Anyone else? Raise up your hand. Say, I'm in the back. I want to give my life to Jesus tonight. Up here in the front. I want that forgiveness. I want a new start. Anyone else? You want to come to Jesus and have your sins forgiven? Raise up your hand. A couple of you in the back. God bless you. Over here in the back. I see your hand. You can put your hands down. Father, we want to thank You for the truth that is presented in Your Word. Lord, I want to pray for these who've raised their hands as they're entering into the gates of the kingdom by grace and forgiveness. God, keep them, Lord. I pray that You'd raise them up as ambassadors and spokesmen in this generation that they would boldly proclaim the gospel even as Paul and the other disciples did. And Lord, that through their own lives as You change them, that they would be instruments of changing others. Oh, the possibility of a saved soul. Thank You, Father, again for the ability to get together like this and have fellowship one with another. Thank You for Your promise that takes care of our sin problem. In Jesus' name. Amen.